0: Today's episode's a hard one, but a really, really important one. Today we're talking about what to do if you or someone you love is having suicidal thoughts. We're also talking about how to heal and move forward after a tragedy. Now you guys know I am all about mental health. I wanna talk about it as often as possible, but you may not know that I've lost several friends to suicide throughout my life. And the thing is, I know I'm not the only one. That's why I wanted to talk about it here on the show. Our guest for today is Kayla Steckline. Kayla is an author, a speaker, and a mother of three little boys. Kayla became an unexpected widow in August of 2018 when her husband Andrew, the pastor of their large church in California, died by suicide. With three young boys also grieving and a heart full of pain, it became her mission to bring hope and help to others who have faced unexpected hardships. She recently wrote a book called Rebuilding Beautiful, Welcome What Is, Dare to Dream Again, and Step Bravely into What Could Be. And I cannot wait for you to hear more about it. Here are just a few of the things that we're gonna be talking about in this episode. First, Kayla's gonna talk us through some of the stigmas surrounding mental health and why it's so important for us to check in on our loved ones. Next, she'll talk us through what to do if we know someone who is struggling with their mental health or suicidal thoughts. She's gonna to talk to us about how to seek help. And then finally, she shares how to start healing and rebuilding your life after you've gone through a hardship or tragedy. Guys, this episode's incredible. The things that Kayla shared with me were just amazing. I am so deeply grateful for the work she's doing. Seriously, the second we hung up the phone, I immediately texted several of my friends about the conversation. This is one I know I'm going to be sharing and resharing for years to come. I'm praying that this conversation is as helpful for you as I know it's been for me. Without any further ado, Here's my conversation with Kayla. Hi, friends. I'm so excited for who you get to meet today. I'm sitting here with my new friend, Kayla Stecklein. Um, Kayla, thanks so much for being on the show.
1: Thanks for having me. It's a joy to
0: be here with you. So for women who haven't gotten to meet you yet, can you tell us um, who you are, what you do, and a fun fact about you?
1: Yeah. So I am an author. I am a mom. I have three little boys. They are six, eight, and nine. I always have to think about it for a second because there's birthdays all the time, but there's six, eight, and nine. I swear I know how old my kids are, but it's like... (laughs) It always takes me a minute. It changes. (laughs) I just went back to school. So I have a little more time now. Um, I'm an author. I'm a speaker. I have a book coming out in September called Rebuilding Beautiful. I released a book in 2020 called Fear Gone Wild that really is um, memoir-ish, tells our story. Um, I became a widow at 29 years old. So I'm raising these boys on my own and uh, we've gone through a lot, but it's been about four years since then and we're doing well. Um, So that's the gist of who I am. Um, I'm in Southern California. I live in San Clemente, a cute little surfer town um, right by the coast. So we love it. It's the dream place to raise kids. And a fun fact, since we moved here, we moved here about two years ago my boys have become avid skateboarders. They are like at the skate park every day. We have a little ramp in our backyard. So fun fact about me is I am trying to learn how to skateboard.
0: Okay. That is a very fun fact. I'm I'm so impressed. I think I've tried to stand on a skateboard like twice and I, something about it, like I can ski, I could snowboard for a minute there. Skateboarding, Totally different thing. Like how's it how's it yes. can how's it going?
1: <laughs> it's not it's not going well. <laughs> <laughs> not it's great. It's really great. hard. They make it look yeah. so easy. And I think, you know, I think I think we have the height disadvantage, you know, too, because they're little and they're closer to the ground. It's like they fall and they pop right back up. And when I fall, I fall hard like uh-huh. boom you know it's like a hard so yes. i've had like big scrapes on my arms i'm like bloody i'm like going down the tiniest littlest baby ramp in the skate park and still completely falling on my butt so oh the my major, god people are like what,
0: what happened to you and you're like i mean i was skateboarding
1: <laughs> yes and all the teenage boys are like pointing and laughing and taking videos it's like it's the funniest funniest thing but i'm trying to take advantage while my kids are little and they're like are still not embarrassed, you know, of mom being with them at the skate park. So, taking totally. advantage while i can. Yeah, it's super That's fun.
0: That's so awesome. Oh, that makes me so happy. I have a uh, two two little girls. They are going to be 2 in November and um i don't i mean they might be into skateboarding, but uh it, that has me wondering like what are they going to be into that i can learn how to do with them. That's so fun. Heck yeah.
1: Yeah, it's the it's the best.
0: That's awesome. Okay, um, well, so now everyone knows that you're like cool skater chick. Um, <laughs>
1: hardly, <laughs>
0: hardly. <laughs> um, so you you mentioned that you have a new book coming out soon. Um, again, it's rebuilding beautiful. Uh, welcome. What is dare to dream again and step bravely into what could be. And you mentioned this a little bit, but I know that your first book and this book come from a really really painful time in your life and. I was wondering if you would just share with us um, a little bit of the backstory of what you've been through in the last you know, handful of years, because um, I know that so much of what we're going to talk about comes from the experiences that you've had.
1: Yeah, so... Goodness, uh, about four, over four years ago, I was living the life of my dreams, like really, truly living the life of my dreams. I was married to my dream guy. We were doing ministry together. He was the lead pastor of our church, large church, 4,000 people. A big responsibility at a very, we were young, you know, at a very young age. And we were raising these three boys together. I had my dream home. I had the dream mom car. Like on paper, I had everything I could have ever asked for and more. And I, if, if you would have asked me where I was headed, what my life would have looked like 30 years down the road, I would have confidently told you exactly what I thought my life was gonna look like 30 years down the road. And then my husband got sick um, he started having panic attacks, which led to a depression diagnosis, which led to a very fast journey with depression um, started in about April 2018 that he was diagnosed and we were wrestling and seeing doctors and taking the right medication and doing everything we knew to do to treat his depression. He was taking time off work. We were spending time together. We went away together, just the two of us. He's sitting with mentors, like he's going to therapy, like everything we could have tried, we, we tried it. And the doctors thought he was getting better. And so he was released to go back to work in August of 2018. And um, being the kind of driven, passionate guy that he was, you know, he was pumped. He was so excited to be back to work. And he was excited to share what he had been learning in this season with mental illness. And he realized that mental illness isn't something that the church talks about a lot. And so he um, was so pumped to talk about depression and talk about suicide, gave out the suicide hotline number, did two powerful weekend messages on depression, on mental health, gave out quotes from the NAMI website. Like he had done his research out of anybody um, he would have known to go where to go for help. And then headed into the third weekend, he just had a really awful day at the office and his mind wasn't fully healed. Um, His mind was still so fragile and um, he had a complete, like only way I can describe it um, is a complete mental breakdown and it was unexpected and it was enough to where um, our family and our board of directors kind of realized like, okay, maybe he wasn't ready to go back to work. And so the following day, while we were trying to take um, some time to call the right people and take the right next steps and figure out who's going to speak on Sunday, because he can't speak on Sunday, you know, we were trying to figure out all these things and tidy everything up and then just go tell him this is what we're doing. And while we were away from him for a little bit, he attempted suicide. And it was an absolute blindside, um, a total blindside that... Worst horrific day of my entire life. Um, he was rushed to the hospital and there was nothing that they could do. And so they um, we, we got the gift of one last day with him at the hospital and we got to say goodbye. And on August 25th, 2018, he took his last breath. And with that, I took my first in this brand new life that I never saw coming as a widow at 29 years old with three little boys who were two, four and five years old.
0: I am so sorry. I feel like everyone's just sitting here for a second. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, I want to know the thing that is. You know, I I love that you said that. Um. You know a lot of people don't talk about mental health. And I think that that's been changing uh, in the last handful of years. I mean, you've been a part of that. But can you talk to us about like, what did you... Why don't we talk about mental health more? what, Mm -hmm. What are some of the stigmas that you guys encountered? Or what are some of the, as you've been doing this work for the last four years, you know, what are some of the things that you've like some of the misconceptions that you've heard and talk to me about that.
1: Yeah. And I think you're right. I think it really has shifted and changed in the last four years um, since Andrew died. And there's been other pastors that have died by suicide since then. And so I think it really has just opened up even the pandemic and going through COVID-19. People are dealing with isolation, depression is on the rise, you know, a lot of health issues out of out of the pandemic that weren't even about coronavirus. <laughs> um, yeah. And so, you know, I think it, there's a mental health um, pandemic, a mental illness pandemic happening at the same time. And so I think it is a conversation that is happening and that um, pastors are willing to open up more and they're seeing that there's power and vulnerability. Um, And so, you know, I think when Andrew was alive and at the beginning of our journey, you know, even as I began to grieve, there was just so much I didn't know about depression. There was so much I didn't understand about suicide. Um, I remember one thing in particular, just one of those myths that a lot of people believe about suicide that I um, held and that I believed about suicide before he passed away. We were in the hospital. We had just taken him off life support. Um, we didn't know how much time he had left. And I remember I was I was bawling. And I leaned over the hospital uh, bed and I asked my mother-in-law, will he go to heaven? I had, had this misconception that when somebody dies by suicide, they don't get to go to heaven um I'd picked it up somewhere along the way that um suicide like totally shifts the way that the, the way that what happens what after after you die and so my mother in law leaned back over the hospital bed and told me um of course he's going to heaven. Like his relationship with God and his salvation um, doesn't hinge on the way he died. It hinges on his relationship with Jesus. And so that was so comforting to me in that, in that moment. But I think it is one of those things where we believe if you have enough faith, if you read your Bible regularly, if you're spending time with God, if you're plugged into a local church, if you're in a small group, if you're doing all the Bethmore studies, if you're doing <laughs> all the right things, then your mental health shouldn't, shuff, shouldn't suffer. And for some reason, I think that we forget that mental illness is just as much a physical illness as any other illness. It's just as physical as cancer. It's just as physical as coronavirus. It's just as physical as breaking your arm. You know, mental illness is an invisible illness. It isn't something that you can see. And so it's so hard to understand. And I think it's harder for us to have empathy because it's something that we can't see. You know, We can't get inside the mind of another person. Um, we have no idea what it's like to live with the mind uh, that anybody else is living with except for our own. And so I think that was one of the biggest misconceptions right away that was debunked for me, that I was so grateful that that myth was debunked um, right from the beginning. And then I think also, you know, just that, Like I said, like if you are close enough to God and if you're reading the scriptures and if you're spending time in prayer, then you'll never suffer from depression or suicidal thoughts. And that's just not true. And all that does is for people that are struggling with depression, people that are struggling with anxiety, people that are struggling with other mental health disorders, saying that to them, all that does is keep more shame and blame onto their shoulders and make them feel more isolated and more alone. So I think the most loving thing we can do is to come alongside people and to try our best just to crawl into that dark space with them and just to hold them and to leave our agenda at home, to leave our agenda out the window. And we don't have to have all the right things to say. You know, sometimes I think all people want is our presence and our presence speaks volumes and our presence is enough. And so... Um, There were so many things I did wrong um, when Andrew was struggling with his mental health, you know, that looking back, I just truly didn't understand. And my life was full and I was chasing these three boys and trying to give him space to rest. And I was experiencing what our therapist described as co-burdening his depression. So I was getting just a taste of his depression with him um, as I was trying to care for our kids and create space for him to heal. And so, you know, there were moments where he tried to tell me There were moments where he tried to tell me that he was struggling with suicidal thoughts, that he was up in the middle of the night and he was thinking about suicide. And I just totally missed it. I said all the things you're not supposed to say. You know, I responded with like, that's the most selfish thing you could ever say. You would never do that. Like totally reacted out of my own emotion. And now I know better. Now I know when someone tells you that they're struggling with suicidal thoughts, it's time to lean in. It's time to ask questions. Questions like, do you have a suicide plan? What problem are you trying to solve through suicide? How far have you researched it? How often did you think about it? I wish I would have asked him those questions every single day. I wish I would have picked up the phone and included other people. You know, it's time to... You can't treat mental health alone. And I think I was putting too much of the pressure on myself when we had this team of people around us and I didn't understand or didn't realize that I had all these resources. And so when he when he said those things to me, I should have picked up the phone and I should have called our therapist and said, hey, he just said this to me. He's just telling me that he's struggling with suicidal thoughts. What do I do? What do I say? How can we support him? I should have picked up the phone and called his psychiatrist and said the same thing. I should have picked up the phone and called some of his best friends and clued them in and told them so they could come alongside him and check in with him. So it wasn't just me that was checking in on him because I already had so much on my plate. And so I think that's the struggle too. When you're walking alongside somebody that's struggling with their mental health, you have to create space um, for, for your own cup to fill back up because you're pouring out, pouring out, pouring out, pouring out. And you can get to a place where you're super empty and you have nothing left to give. And so I wish I would have created space for myself too, to do individual therapy, um, to spend time alone, to go away and do solitude, to do all the things that he was doing. I wish I would have created space for myself to do those things too. And so that's a really loaded answer. Um, I think there's just so much that we do not understand. And I think... You know, I did the best that I could in that situation. And of course, hindsight's 2020. and I wish I could go back and change a million things. Um, but there's so much grace um, in our journey. But I think the biggest takeaway is that if anybody tells you they're struggling with suicidal thoughts, it's time to take it seriously. And it's time to pick up the phone and call somebody. It's time to clue in other people. Um, and it's time to respond and not react out of your own emotion.
0: there's so much that you said that I'm like, oh, I want to talk about that more. And the thing about filling up your own cup, like, of course, you're going to react emotionally to that, you know, like who everyone would, but it makes sense that, and you know, I found this in smaller ways in marriage and in friendship, you know, that when you're going through something hard sometimes, or when, when you're going through something with someone else. Sometimes it's really helpful. Often it's helpful to have another person who you can talk to about it. And um, that's one of the reasons that therapy in general is just so powerful, because um, if you're in a fight with someone or you're in, like in an argument or a disagreement with someone, you know, you may have like your first reaction of what you want to say to them. But generally, that's not the most helpful one. And so having just more people in your corner that you can process with where your processing isn't going to like It's hard to process with the person you're processing about, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's so important to have that neutral space. That neutral space where they're not a friend, they're not a family member, they're not somebody that you see every single day. They're truly there to sit with you and ask questions and be neutral.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And like, they don't care about the answer. Like they do, Mm -hmm. but it's not, you know, one of the things that we've been talking about in our community kind of lately is... Um, you know, the decision to start trying to have kids. Like that's a huge decision that, that you know, is really hard to make. And I feel like processing it with your mom is kind of a hard thing to do because she has some skin in the game. You know, she she may Absolutely. have some strong opinions about wanting some grandkids. And so she's not a neutral party and um, it really affects her. And so talking with someone who it doesn't actually personally uh, impact, do you think that like, how do we know if someone in I guess other than them telling us, how do we know that a family member or a friend is struggling with their mental health? like, is mm-hmm. it always obvious? Is it like, what are some maybe warning signs and mm-hmm. um what do we if we're if we're looking out for the people in our lives, which we should be doing, how do we how do we know if something's off?
1: Yeah. You know, I think every single situation is so different and every mental health journey, mental illness journey, depression journey um, is unique to that person. But I think there were some warning signs in our situation that I totally missed too. You know, we went through four very hard years um, when our first, really our first like four years of marriage were some of our most difficult years. Um, His dad was diagnosed with leukemia one year into our marriage and he was the lead pastor of our church. And so Andrew, you know, at the time was probably 23, 24 years old and he felt this pressure to step up. He felt this pressure to be there for his dad, to help lead the church with his dad, to speak regularly on Sundays, to be the guy his dad would call on Saturday night when he was too sick to preach on Sunday. And so he was running on fumes for four years Um, as he's watching his best friend, his mentor, the person that he loves and looks up to the most suffering and dying from this horrible disease. And so I think through those four years, in those four years, there were moments where he didn't want to get out of bed. There were moments where um he was isolating, where he was um not wanting to spend time with friends, where he was sleeping more than he normally had. Um so I think there were some where that he was maybe drinking more than he should have been drinking too. you know, I think there were some of those warning signs and those red flags. I think isolation is a is a huge red flag um, when someone is not wanting to hang out, maybe they're not returning your phone calls, maybe they're not returning your texts. maybe they're um, just not not responding the way that they normally respond in relationship with you. I think um, if you notice that someone's um, reaching for, you know, Something to numb out if they're reaching for alcohol more than they normally do. If they're reaching for their phone and they're just on their phone scrolling more than they normally do. If they're laying in bed watching Netflix more than they normally do. You know, I think there's things that we do to numb some of the pain that we're feeling and to kind of try to escape from some of that pain that we're feeling instead of embracing it. Um, I think you know. Um, I think mood swings and mood changes too. You know, we saw that with my with my husband. Um, his depression often came out in anger. Um, it wasn't it wasn't like I thought it would look. You know, I think we think depression and we think sad. And I think depression looks a lot um, different than just sad, and it can it can look like anxiety. It can look like someone that's experiencing more anxiety than they normally do. It can look like someone that's feeling more anger than they normally do. And so I think just asking questions and getting curious and not trying to label anybody, not trying to diagnose anybody, um, not trying to say, hey, I think you're struggling with depression. I think it's more asking questions like, why do you think that you um, are so tired all the time? Or why aren't you answering my phone calls? What's going on? What are what are, what are those deeper feelings that you're feeling? Um, what... What is happening within your mind and within your heart? How can I walk alongside you? What can I do to support you? How can I serve you? That's a really powerful question to ask somebody. We think they're struggling with their mental health. Like, how can I serve you? And I also think, you know, like, try and if you feel like you have a friend or a family member that you think is struggling, like, do your best to show up in in the ways that maybe are the out of the box ways. Like, if they're not answering the phone, you can leave them an encouraging vo- voicemail. If they're um, not responding to your text or they're not picking up the phone, you can stop by and leave something on their porch. You know, there are non invasive ways where you don't aren't overbearing, um, where you can love and support people, or even sending a pizza, like door dashing a pizza on a Tuesday night. And maybe they already have dinner made, but pizza is a really great thing to reheat the next day, you know, (laughs) as well. But yeah, I think there's lots of different warning signs, and it's a case by case. Uh, thing you know, every every diagnosis looks so different, and the way that everybody responds to mental illness and depression and anxiety looks so different too. Um, but I think just getting curious and asking questions can be one of the um, you know biggest blessings you know that we can give somebody else is just to get curious, ask questions, give them our presence. Um, not showing up with an agenda, just showing up and giving them our full attention, looking them in the eyes, putting away our phone and really truly being present. And I think when we're fully present, we can pick up on things that we may have missed when we're not, when we're like trying to have a conversation, but also like holding our phone in our hand or when we're trying to have a conversation, but there's also a show on the TV. You know, I think it's like getting rid of everything else and giving somebody our undivided attention. Um... And I also think, you know, something that um, we can do too is to be vulnerable about our own struggles is to open up about the things that we're struggling with. You know, if maybe we're struggling with anxiety or we're feeling... Um, depressed or we're struggling with whatever it is, you know, I think that that swings open the door for other people to be vulnerable too. I think sometimes when we go first, other people are willing to go to and open and share um, what they're really going through. You know, I think vulnerability creates space for vulnerability.
0: Yeah, 100%. Um, if we know that someone in our life isn't doing well, and like, I want to ask more about about um like suicidal thoughts in a second, but just if we recognize that someone in our life or they are recognizing that they're struggling with depression um, or anxiety or just with any part of their mental health, what help is available like how how do we help them?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, we're present with them, but how do we like, yeah, what what should what should they do next?
1: Yeah. You know, like I said earlier, I think a mental illness um, needs to be treated as a team. And so I think, you know, coming at it with a team approach and that it's not just something that um, you keep in the dark. You know, I think the enemy loves when we keep things in the dark. And I think it's so important to bring some of that stuff out and, and shed light on some of those dark Thoughts and so, um, I think picking up the phone and calling the suicide hotline number. Um, I know they made it easy. Let me look it up real quick. They made it easy now, too, where they changed the text. There's like a suicide text, it's like 988, I think, is what it is. And there's even a crisis text line. You can just like shoot a text. You don't even have to pick up the phone and call. You can literally just like shoot a text on your phone. If you if you feel like, you know, I think the thing too is that when someone's struggling with suicidal thoughts, they're feeling shame, and so they might. If you ask them if you can, if you ask them if you can tell other people, if you ask them, hey, can I tell your mom or can I fill in your brother or can I fill in your best friend or can I, you know, call the doctor and fill them in, they may say no. And so, I think avoiding that question, too, and just knowing that like you can't handle this on their own, they can't handle this on their own, and that it has to be treated as a team, and that that's a non-negotiable. And so texting, sending a text is a very discreet way, you know, to to do that as well. Um, I think filling in the therapist, filling in whoever's on the team. And if you don't have a team of people, if you don't have a therapist and a psychiatrist and, maybe a pastor from church or a close circle of friends, like find those people, reach out to those people. It's so easy to find a therapist. You can go on Psychology Today, put in your zip code, put in your insurance information and find a therapist within like a 10 mile radius of your home. And so yeah. um, there's there's online now with Zoom, with the technology that we have. I do therapy online. I move so do to I. your... I moved two years ago and I still have the same therapist. So I meet with her over Zoom, you know, like yeah. every couple months now. Um, but I think including and keying in other people um, that can also be checking in with your loved ones. So it's not all the pressure is not on you to be carrying the weight of their suicidal thoughts with them. I think the to, in order to lift and share the pain, it needs to be lifted and shared onto into more than one person. And so... Um, reaching out to a therapist. If you don't have a therapist, find a therapist. Maybe it's making an appointment with a psychiatrist. If you don't have a psychiatrist, maybe it's important to go get evaluated and sit with the psychiatrist. Maybe it's time to call the care pastor at your church and say, hey, can we set up a meeting with you? My husband's really struggling. We would love prayer. You know, I think oftentimes too on Sunday mornings, there's like that prayer time after service and there's prayer room where you can go up to the front and get prayer. I think prayer is powerful um, I know that God, there's God can supernaturally heal heal people from depression and suicidal thoughts, and I totally believe in that. And I think that prayer should always be a part of the um, plan, you know, the healing plan. Prayer should always be a part of the healing plan. and you know that also needs to be uh, mental illness is also a physical illness. It's not just a spiritual illness, like you know, like the stigma with mental health, and so it has to also be treated by it professionals in the medical field. And so that's where the therapist and the psychiatrist comes into. And then I also think um, if you're, if you have close family members or you have a close circle of friends that you can trust, like you don't need to tell a lot of people, but cluing in like one or two people that are like this person's best friend that can also be checking in with them and asking them and encourage those people say, Hey, I need your help. I can't handle this on my own. I can't carry this on my own. And they're not going to tell you. My loved one may not tell you. They may not text you or call you and tell you that they're struggling with suicidal thoughts, but I wanted to tell you for them. And I need your help to support them and to love them and to be there for them. And so, you know, I think um, just sharing the responsibility is the biggest thing we can do to support our loved one and to including in other people and treating it as a team.
0: I love that. I, I love the... Like, reminder that this is more than this person can handle on their own. And it's more than you can handle on your own. Like, this is beyond our pay grade as a friend, as a sister, as a wife. Like, this is out. This is, this is not something that we can handle by ourselves, but as a team and with some really, really good professionals in on that team, like, that's, that makes this lighter. But, um, better I guess like that's the path forward
1: Mm -hmm. more manageable you know and just and it also just takes the weight and the pressure off of the closest loved one you know lifts some of that weight and that pressure and especially like what if the suicide does happen you know in our case like the suicide did happen and I looking back like that's one of my biggest regrets is not telling anybody and not asking him more about it and not taking it seriously I think that's the biggest thing too, is just to take it seriously. Don't think that it won't ever happen. I think that, you know, we like love our person so much and because we're not struggling with suicidal thoughts, we can't imagine ever being um, that close to the edge. And we oftentimes don't understand what it feels like to be that close to the edge. I remember reading a blog that Anne Voskamp wrote and she talked about um, depression and suicidal thoughts like being trapped in a burning building and the only way to escape the flames is to jump out the window. And we may not know what it feels like to be trapped in the burning building. And so don't assume um, that it's something that's never going to happen because it does. I think that there
0: are so many situations where people do feel this weight of responsibility for their loved one. And you know, I think it happens a lot and for lots of different reasons. Like, and I know that we shouldn't wear that responsibility. Like, you know, we do need a team to be helping this person, but like, can we prevent this? Like, if someone in our life is suicidal, like can we
1: stop them? Mm-hmm. I've, I absolutely believe that we can. You know, I think that suicide is so complicated. Um, I think that we can do the best that we can do with the resources that we have and the people that we have in our lives to support this person. And I'll never forget something that's been really helpful for me. Um, I'll never forget what Andrew's psychiatrist, you know, the team of doctors that he did have surrounding him were shocked when the suicide happened because they, just like me, had no idea how bad it really was. His, um, like doctor was actually there when he took his last breath at the hospital. And I'll never forget her face and her tears and just her emotion in the moment. She was so shocked. And so, you know, I think the one thing that Andrew's psychiatrist did share with us is that 90% of suicides are impulsive. 90% of suicides are impulsive. So it really is this in the moment, overwhelming flood of pain. Pain that is like so overwhelming that we we can't understand. Like I talked about earlier, like we just fully can't understand it. And so I think that that part is what makes suicide hard to prevent, is that it is ninety percent of the time impulsive. You don't know what's happening. You don't know how bad that person's struggling. You don't. You have. You just have no idea. You know because you're not in their body. You're not in their mind. You don't. You don't know what it what it what it feels like to live in their shoes. And so I think we can do the best that we can with the resources that we have to love and support the person that we love that's suffering. Um, But I also think, you know, I describe Andrew's death like a child drowning in a swimming pool at a birthday party. Um, He was surrounded by people that loved him and we just had no idea that he was drowning. We had no idea how bad it really was. And if any of us would have known, we would have jumped in the water and saved him. We just had no clue. And so yes... I believe suicide can be prevented. I believe there's ways we can love and support and use the resources that we have to love and support our loved one that's suffering. Um, but I also know that suicide is, a, is an impulsive, in the moment thing that can't always be prevented too. Yeah.
0: I mean, you guys were there for him. You did have him surrounded. You were taking care of him. and And so I think that's like the there's so much to process as the person who has like, as the loved one who's lost someone, you know, is there something more that I could have said? Is there, and I think that there's like being proactive and taking care of our people and listening and really taking any mentions of suicide really, really seriously. Um, Like everything that you've been saying, but then also knowing that like we, that it's also never our fault. Mm -hmm.
1: Absolutely. And you know, something that's been so helpful for me too in my healing journey is talking about suicide differently and talking about the way that Andrew died differently. Um, Before, I would have used the word committed. I would have said he committed suicide. And since he's passed away, I use the phrase died by suicide. And what that does, um, changing our language, you know, our words matter. Our words are so powerful. And even that small shift in language can be a powerful tool to the way that we grieve and our healing journey moving forward. Um, Removing the word committed and saying died by suicide. It takes the blame and shame off of Andrew's shoulders. It's not, I I truly believe and if Andrew was in his right mind, if he was in his healthy mind, the suicide would have never happened. I don't believe that it was Andrew's fault. I don't believe that it was a doctor's fault. I don't believe that it was my fault. I don't believe that it was therapist's fault. I don't believe that it was God's fault. You know, I believe the suicide was a tragic accident, just like a child drowning the swimming pool, like a tragic accident, and truly no one is to blame. And it's just as much a tragedy as any other tragedy, as any other freak accident. Um, I really, truly believe that you know, seeing suicide that way, talking about suicide that way, saying he died by suicide, seeing suicide as the villain, not my husband. Um, (laughs) Suicide is, you know, the bad guy. And, um, that small shift in language can be so healing and so helpful. And even the way that I communicate it to my boys too, you know, just last year, I talked about the word suicide for the first time. They knew, you know, when I sat them down, I waited a week to tell them and I talked to child life specialists, you know, I was in shock and I was grieving and I wasn't sure like how in the world am I going to sit down at two, four and five year olds and tell them that this happened. And, um, I didn't want to lie and I didn't want to hide the truth. And so I sat them down and I told them, you know, your dad's been really sick and he's been going to the doctor a lot and he's been sleeping a lot and they're like nodding their heads because they knew, you know, he wasn't well and we were all, you know, taking care of him and that he had been sick for months. And um, I told them, you know, daddy did something that caused him to die. And so, I really started the conversation then. And then just recently, um as they're getting older, you know, they're almost my oldest is almost ten. And my middle guy is eight, my youngest is six. they're they're hearing the word suicide, you know, they're they're hearing more about depression and mental health and It's coming up more. And so I try to take those moments when I can lean in, those teachable moments when I can lean in and tell them more about what that means and why we talk about it this way and help them shift their language. And because I've done the work myself, because I've shifted the language myself, because I've approached the healing journey the way I've approached the healing journey and I'm not blaming their dad and I'm not mad at their dad and I'm not blaming the doctors and I'm not mad at the doctors and I'm not blaming myself or... His family, like I, you know, really, truly, like no one is to blame. And because I've done the healing work myself, I'm able to help my boys see it in that light too. I'm able to help my boys have empathy and compassion for their dad, to have empathy and compassion for other people that have died by suicide or other people that are struggling with their mental health. So the biggest gift we can give our kids is a healthy, uh, someone said that, that's a quote for somebody, but the biggest gift we can give our kids is a healthy you is a healthy s. and so doing the hard work of healing and embracing our pain and uh, looking at it from a whole perspective um really shifts the way not only that we can grieve and heal and move forward, but also the way that our kids can grieve and heal and move forward too.
0: Uh, I'm trying not to cry i I thought I love that so much. and I think you know it it is really you know, when we're grieving the loss of someone, it is so easy to be mad at them and to feel like they they are the one who took your loved one. And like, technically, I get like, but it's, but it's not like that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I love the way that you said, you know, like your dad's been sick for a long time. And we, you know, we, when we use that language, we're usually talking about something like cancer, you know, like you said, and, and we don't have any blame for that. It's, there's no like, well, you gave yourself cancer. Obviously that's not the case. And so, you know, saying that, that we're, we're, we have so much more empathy for you know this person's been sick and and sometimes that you know ends in or sometimes that chapter ends in, in victory and healing and then sometimes that that chapter ends in us losing that person but it's never their fault and when someone is is struggling with their mental illness or with with their mental health like they are it is a sickness it is mm-hmm. it is something that is not as it as it should be and exactly like Exactly like cancer. And so just that that phrasing of, you know, he's been sick and then died by suicide is just I I absolutely love that because you're right. That language instantly helps you feel empathy for the person and, and what like what life must have felt like in there, like how 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 much the house was burning yeah. for them to feel like they had to jump out of it. Um, I, you know, so we totally haven't even talked about your new book yet, but I really want to, um, so it's called Rebuilding Beautiful. Um, what has that looked like for you? Like Mm -hmm. how how do we, when we go through something really tragic or just, just a really low season, how do we, is it possible for us to have a beautiful life after that? And, And how, what does that look like?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So uh, like three years ago, I was about a year into my healing journey and I was sitting on my front porch swing talking to my friend on the phone and I was explaining to her how I had this beautiful life. Like I said earlier, like I really truly had everything I could have ever asked for and more. And I loved my life. I loved being a pastor's wife. I loved the work that we were doing. I was so proud of my life. I truly loved my life. And I told her it felt like that whole entire life died with Andrew, and I was handed this life that I never saw coming. And I so deeply believe that this life can still be beautiful, that this new life, this unexpected life can still be beautiful. And I said the words, it's as if I'm rebuilding beautiful. And so that's really when those words were born. And I think it's just such a... um hope-filled perspective. It's such a hope-filled like mantra Uh, for anybody that's in a season of rebuilding, for anybody that was handed a life that they didn't see coming, for the person that um, their job took them to a whole new city, uh, for the person whose marriage they thought was going to last forever ended in divorce, or there was an affair, there was some kind of breaking in the relationship, um, for the person that like me, that that lost somebody that they love. And now life moving forward is going to look completely different than it would have if that person was in their life. And so um, I deeply, truly believe that life after loss, life after the death of a dream, life after the loss of a career, life after whatever hard, fast curveball comes hurtling our way can still be beautiful. And it's just going to be a completely different version of beautiful than it was before. It's never going to be the same. And I think that's important to say and that's important to understand that I'm not trying to build the same version of beautiful. I'm rebuilding beautiful. It's a completely different kind of beautiful, but I deeply believe it can still be breathtakingly beautiful And that it's a work in progress, you know, that I have not arrived. I don't think we ever arrive. I think we're constantly evolving and changing and rebuilding and stepping in and out of different versions of ourselves, learning new things about ourselves and learning new things about God. And, um, you know, I think if we're fully alive and fully present and fully invested um, in our life and what God wants to do in and through us, that our life is going to be constantly changing and evolving and growing and that um, it can be breathtakingly beautiful and not despite pain. I think that's also one of those myths that somehow we leave the pain behind or it's something we just move, we move on or we move past it. And it's like, no, like I'm going to carry the pain of Andrew's death with me for the rest of my life. And it's this sacred part of me. Um, It's this like amazing teacher. Pain has been one of the greatest teachers of my life. Um, And it's also a a heavy load sometimes, you know, this, this week in particular, tomorrow and the next day are two of the hardest days in the whole year. Um, The anniversary days, the anniversary of the death, you know, some of those days are just the hardest days ever. And there's unexpected pain that comes with that. Just yesterday I was, I was feeling off and I just sat and I started journaling and praying and I started weeping and I'm like, Oh my gosh, I'm feeling all this emotion that I didn't even know or expect. And so, you know, I think that that's going to happen four years in, that's going to happen eight years in, that's going to happen 20 years in. Um, so pain isn't something that we leave behind. It's something that we move forward with us. And pain is part of that beautiful landscape. Pain is part of the rebuilding beautiful journey. And pain is the sacred part um, that I that I hate. And I'm also like so grateful for because it's taught me so much. Shout out to Claritin
0: for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. Friends, springtime is finally here, but that also means allergy season is in full swing. I have always struggled with allergies, and I don't know about you, but I am especially allergic to cats. More on that in a second. Well, luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash friendship. Hey friends, I want to take a quick pause from my conversation with Kayla to thank our sponsor for today. Our sponsor for today's episode is an amazing company called Pros. Now, most of you have probably heard me sing the praises of Prose, the world's most personalized hair care, but for those who haven't, I wanted to tell you guys about the incredible results I've been seeing since using my customized Prose products. Prose has given over 1 million consultations with their free hair quiz, and that's how the process started for me. The quiz was so much fun, it felt like one of those magazine quizzes I used to love. It was easy, but also really in-depth. They asked me so many questions that I wouldn't have thought to answer, like how much is your hair shed or is your hair oily at the ends or just near your scalp? So I did the hair quiz and I placed my order and just a few days later, the package showed up on my doorstep. I have a pre-shampoo mask, shampoo, and conditioner. I've been using all those products for a while now and it's made such a difference. My hair feels silky and soft and looks even shinier. And the other thing I love is that you can continuously customize your formula. They'll help you tweak things depending on your lifestyle changes or even changes in the weather. Prose is also focused on providing clean and responsible products. Every product is free of parabens, sulfates, phthalates, mineral oils, GMOs, and is always cruelty-free. Also, if you're not 100% positive that Prose is the best hair care you've ever had, they'll take the products back, no questions asked. But I have a feeling that won't be an issue for you. Friends, Prose is the healthy hair regimen with your name all over it. Take your free in-depth hair quiz and get 15% off your first order today. Just go to proscom slash girlsnight. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash girls night for your free in-depth hair quiz and 15% off. Pros, thank you so much for sponsoring our girls night. We just love having you. What are some of the the beautiful things in your life in in this like new version of your life that you (laughs) like, what are some of those breathtakingly beautiful things?
1: Yeah, you know, I think for us, the biggest thing, the best thing that I've done for my healing journey was to move. Um, we lived about an hour, just only an hour. I didn't move like across the country or move to a different country. Like I only moved an hour. Um we were inland hour, in hours. So I moved closer to the coast and it has been such a gift to be living in a city where there's no memories. There's no memories of Andrew. We never really spent time here, maybe visited here one or two times together where it's really, truly a fresh start where our story isn't being told for us where I'm not driving past the cemetery on the way to the grocery store like I was in the home that I used to live, where I'm not bumping into people that used to go to our church, you know, everywhere I go, where I'm not passing the spot we used to go for date night, you know, when I'm just trying to go pick up my kids from school. And so it's been so helpful and so healing to have a fresh new start. And that's just been something for me, especially that I just needed, you know, not everybody's people can stay in the house and they can stay in the city. And for me, um, I knew that I couldn't stay. I knew that I had to go. And so listening to the Holy Spirit and listening to like, you know, the voice inside that's saying it's time, like it's, it's time to go. It's time to, to pack up. And so We moved um, about two years ago and that has been the most beautiful, incredible gift I could have given myself and my kids. Um, I gave them back the power of their story. Their story isn't being told for them. Um, If I would have stayed where we lived before, their story would have been told for them. They were at a private Christian school. A lot of the families, a lot of the teachers went to our church. You know, it it would have followed them as they grew up. And so they get to tell their story on their own terms to who they want to, when they want to, how they want to. And it's not being told for them. And I think that's true for me too. You know, in the in the new friends, I have two of my best friends lived here. So that was the draw to move here. Oof, but yeah. even in the new friends that I've made here too, it's like I get to share what I want, when I want, how I want. Um, and also like, this is just, it's just a completely blank canvas. And so... It's it's empowered me to try new things. It's empowered me um, to step into different versions of myself that I maybe would have never stepped into before. I completely remodeled our house. So that's been like really fun and something that's like totally... Beautiful. Um, We bought this little fixer upper and we had just finished remodeling our other house. And so I was like, oh, I don't want to get a fixer upper. (laughs) Um, But we did. We bought this little fixer upper that literally needed everything. It was like infested with termites. Termites had eaten the hardwood floors. There were just like strips of the floor that were missing. The shower was leaking. There was warped flooring in the bathrooms, like just like moldy kitchen. Like everything was just like disgusting. And so Little by little, we've been tackling projects together. Me and my boys, I've been handing them hammers and they help me rip out flooring. I have videos of us knocking out walls. Literally, my kids are like kicking through the drywall in the living room. They help me knock out the tile in the bathroom. They're helping me cut stuff and glue stuff. And so it's been really, really cool. The parallel of like, yes, we're rebuilding our life, but we're also like rebuilding our house. Uh (laughs) And just all the parallels that come with that, like sitting on the subfloor and my kids are drawing on the subfloor of our house which was so cool we all left like little love notes all over the subfloor no one will ever see them because we glued our floor down so it's covered (laughs) in glue but it was so cool to like be sitting on the subfloor and looking around my living room and like staring at all these two by fours and like oh my gosh this is such a metaphor for my life like it really takes like stripping away, you know, Andrew's death stripped away so many things. It stripped away my pride. It stripped away like my future that I thought I was going to have. It stripped away my identity because so much of my identity was wrapped up in who he was that I'd kind of lost my sense of self. And so in this new life, it's like I've been I've been discovering so many things. I've been discovering who, who am I? I've been asking the question, who am I now that he's gone? And the answer to that question has been so surprising. It's like, I truly get to live into whatever God is calling me to be, you know, and I'm doing all these things. I'm like, you know, using power tools and using a jigsaw, like, you know, like cutting stuff with a table saw and the hammer, putting in flooring on my hands and knees, covered in glue, like covered in paint, like doing all these things that I never thought I would do. Um, so all of it's beautiful. All of it is just surprising, you know, too. It's like I really most days just like shake my head and sit back and just complete awe at the mystery of it all. And I think that's the, the, the best posture we can take. And in any season of life, it's just sitting back in the mystery of it all and the mystery of the things that I will never be able to understand. And the mystery of the loss and the pain that I was handed that I still carry with me and in the mystery of the beauty and joy that I still have that I'm still finding here on the other side of loss and that it's all of it. It's both and it's all of it. My, um, My son, right after my husband passed away, it was the first Mother's Day after he passed away. He just described this journey of both of it, of all of it. So well, um, we were in the classroom. All the moms were invited for a Mother's Day makeovers. So we literally like brought our makeup bags and our mirrors and the kids got to like put on our makeup and do our hair. And it was hilarious. And on the little table, after we all got like our crazy makeovers, my hair's all nuts. I have like eyebrows on my forehead. And after our makeover, I'm sitting at the table and there's all those little cute little fill in the blanks that they do at school, you know, for the Mother's Day. It's like my mom's favorite food is salad. My mom loves to watch TV, you know, like the silly Uh things that they fill in. And one of those things uh, my son had written, I love it when my mom takes me to... And there was a blank and a blank. And he wrote, I love it when my mom takes me to the cemetery and takes me to Disneyland literally the saddest place on earth and the quote unquote happiest place on earth in the same sentence. So even my kids understand um, the duality of our life, that it's both and that yes, it is hard and it's painful and it sucks and it hurts. And it's also amazing and beautiful. And I can't believe we get to live where we live. And I can't believe we get to do what we get to do. And I can't believe we have the family and the friends that we have and the life that we have. Like it's all of it. And so I think that's the biggest thing that pain has taught me too, is that like it really um, allows you to enter into this deeper stream of humanity. It allows you to see things that you've never seen before. It allows you to, to see other people, you know, the person that's driving crazy on the road, the person that's yelling at the lady at the grocery store, like it allows you to have empathy and compassion because you really truly, when you're the person that's walking through the grocery store with pain that nobody can see, um it helps you to know that there's other people also walking through the grocery store or walking down the street or driving down the street or sitting on the sidelines of the soccer game that have pain that you cannot see um so it gives you just new empathy and compassion and love uh, for everybody and so there's just so many things i know that's a loaded answer there's just so many things that i've learned here and that i'm still learning here um And it's beautiful and incredible and hard and painful and amazing all wrapped together. Oh,
0: (laughs) I I think probably everyone else is crying too right now. (laughs) Um, Kayla, just as we're finishing up, would you pray for us? Just, I I know that there are women um, sitting here who have, you know, recently lost something important to them or someone important to them. I know that, So many of the women in our community, myself included, have, have, um, suicide has touched their lives. Um, they've lost people that they love. And I know that there are women sitting here who are struggling with their mental health, maybe in ways that feel, um, you know, maybe it's like a small flame, you know, maybe it's like a match or maybe it feels like the entire house is on fire. And, um, so yeah, I just would love to, to finish out by having you pray for us. Sure.
1: God, thank you for the gift of today. Thank you for the gift of this conversation with Stephanie. Thank you that um, you promise to be with us in the really hard, awful, terrible things and the really beautiful, incredible, amazing things too. God, that your presence is always with us, that you see us when we feel like no one sees us, that you hear us when we feel like no one hears us, no one's listening. God, I pray for my my friends that are listening to this today, God, that, that are in that place, that are in that place where they feel like no one sees them, no one understands their pain, where they feel isolated and alone. God, I pray that you would just meet them there, that they would know that you are there with them, that they would know that there's hope, that there's help, that there's people surrounding them, even now, God, that would love nothing more than to be invited into the depths of their pain. God, I pray that you would make them brave, that you would make all of us brave enough to reach out for help when we need it. Thank you for your love. Thank you for the love that we have in the community that surrounds us, God. Help us to search for those lifelines of love. Help us to fill our days with your joy and your beauty, God, to look for the things that we can't always see, to uncover the gifts that you've given us right here, right now. God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see it. We thank you for your grace that sustains us and carries us through. We thank you for your love that sustains us and carries us through. And I pray that you would just bless my friends that are listening to this today. God, that you would meet them right where they're at and that you would carry them through their darkest days. God, we love you. We thank you. We bless you. Amen. Thank you, Kiwa.
0: Friends, thank you so much for listening to this episode. I can't tell you how much it means to me to have you here at Girls' Night. Before you go, I would love it if you do two quick things. The first is to Subscribe. Subscribing to the podcast is the best way to make sure you never miss an episode. It's also a way easier way to listen because it's a way of sort of bookmarking the podcast. You'll never have to go looking for it again. Your app will just automatically download the next episode when a new one's released. The other thing is that it would mean so much to me if you would take just a quick second to leave a rating and a review for the podcast. The way that iTunes knows to suggest the podcast to new people is by the ratings and the reviews. That's how we invite new friends to our Girls' Nights. So would you do me a huge favor and take a quick second to leave a rating and a quick comment about how you like the podcast so far? It would help us out so much. And thank you to all of you who've left those beautiful five-star reviews already. I can't tell you how much it means to me. All right, friends, that's all we have for today, but we'll be back next week with another episode of Girls' Night. And I have to tell you, you are going to love this next one. I'll see you then.